We'll be in Luke chapter 9 this morning. In the early 1900s, the filmmaker and actor Charlie Chaplin became so famous that they actually began to hold and host Charlie Chaplin look-alike contests in different parts of the world. Now, some chalk what I'm about to say up to urban legend, but according to one newspaper, the Sheffield, Sheffield Evening Telegraph, which was published in July of 1920, Charlie Chaplin entered a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest. He came in 20th place. <laughs> now, if Charlie Chaplin can enter a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest and finish 20th, what that reminds me of is my utter failure at times to imitate and to be like and to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways that this is evident at times in my own heart is the struggle that I have to respond well to those who reject Christ or are even antagonistic towards Christ, whom the Psalms might refer to in Proverbs as the scoffer. So before we dive into the text, we should sort of catch up at, I can't, I'll get it figured out, contextually. Where we are in the book of Luke, we took a break after we got to chapter 9, verse 50. We took about a year to walk through chapter 1, 1 through chapter 9, verse 50. We learned that Luke sets out to, to write, to record an orderly account concerning the life and ministry of Jesus. His goal is that Theophilus and even us as readers would have a certainty concerning who Christ is and what he's about. And from the very beginning, Luke sets out to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus. He sort of contrasts John the Baptist with Jesus, and over and over and over again, we see that Jesus is greater. Even though John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets, he's the prophets that the prophets prophesied about. He's, according to Jesus, the greatest man to ever live. Well, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And he's greater because he is the Son of God. He's the king in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 of that kingdom which will have no end. He is the Savior of the world, the one who has come to redeem sinners from their sin. He's beloved by the Father as the Father pronounces that he is well pleased with the Son at Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, anointing him for his public ministry. Before that ministry begins, we saw that Jesus defeated Satan at every temptation that Satan could throw at him. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, even as Nate prayed a moment ago. So then Jesus ministers in and around Galilee. And in this we saw Jesus' great authority. We saw his authority over creation as he had the ability to, to still a storm with the power of his voice. We saw his authority over illness as he was able to heal and, and immediately those who were struck with illness were healed. We saw his authority over angels as with, with a word he cast out demons. We even saw his authority over death as he was able to raise people from the dead. And ultimately, we saw his authority over sin as he pronounced people forgiven of 
their sin. And so overall, we saw in Jesus an authority that exceeds every other authority, yet we see in Jesus that he wields his authority in a compassionate way to serve the undeserving sinner like you and I. And you might think then that that if this is Christ, then surely everyone gladly received Christ. Surely everyone fell down and recognized this King of Kings, the one who will sit and rule on the throne of David. But so far, this, this ministry has been surrounded by failure. Not failure on Jesus' part. Obviously not failure on Jesus' part, but failure of the crowds to see who Christ is and what he has come to do. Even failure on the part of his own disciples to fully grasp what Jesus has been teaching them and what he has been trying to get them to see. Failure on their part to believe what he is saying. By and large, Jesus has been rejected by the very ones he came to rescue. And we see that rejection in our text this morning. So these two paragraphs that Nate read earlier, they work in conjunction with with one another to make this point. Since following Jesus means sharing in his rejection and suffering, the Christian life requires total commitment to Christ. So this morning we're going to look at the, the first paragraph there, the rejection of Jesus and the wrong response of the disciples, and the next week we'll we'll look at you know, the cost of following Jesus in light of the fact that he is rejected. So here we see that in suffering rejection with Christ, we must imitate him and patiently wait. Look there in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So at chapter 9, verse 51, Luke begins to record uh, events in the latter part of Jesus' earthly ministry. His public ministry is drawing to a close. The days are drawing near for him to be taken up. So this intervening time between the close of Jesus' Galilean ministry and his arrival in Jerusalem in chapter 19 verse 44 is sort of a travel log, although it's not just one long journey. We'll see Jesus kind of moving around quite a bit. But during this time where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, we see that his, at- his attention by and large turns to preparing his disciples for his in- uh, upcoming death, resurrection, and ascension. And, and, and we find Jesus in this, this large section confronting the Jewish leaders about their lack of sight in who he is. You know, for sure there are healings and there are miracles in this section, but they're much fewer than the previous section. So this instruction, you know, we find a lot of Jesus' parables in this section. These confrontations ramp up because the days are drawing near for him to be taken up. 
the, this, this idea of taken up, I think it looks forward to really the totality of Jesus' work that he will accomplish there in Jerusalem. His death, his resurrection, and even his ascension. The days are drawing near for this work that Christ has come to be completed. And really at chapter 9, verse 51, the, the, the whole tenor of Luke's gospel begins to change where the primary focus has been on the coming of Jesus, now we begin to transition to the going of Jesus through death, through resurrection, and ultimately through ascension. And of course, none of this is, is accidental. None of this is incidental to Jesus' purposes. The day is drawing near because this day was predetermined by the Lord from before the foundation of the world. In fact, that word drawing near sometimes carries with it the connotation of fulfillment. The time of fulfillment has come. We know that Jesus often spoke of his own life and ministry as the scriptures being fulfilled in him. And so the place of his, the, the fulfillment of so much of what was prophesied will happen in Jerusalem. And so Jesus, knowing that the fulfillment of his mission goes through the cross in Jerusalem, now sets his face in that direction. He's heading towards the cross. He's heading towards the resurrection. He's heading towards ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father. So in other words, this, this idea of setting your face, it's determining to accomplish the purpose for which he came. You know, Jesus' determination, his setting his face to suffer rejection, humiliation, and abuse, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 50 with the suffering servant. If you want to look in Isaiah 50, you can. If not, I'll, I'll read read some of that to you. The first three verses of Isaiah 50 talk about the failure of Israel to obey the Lord. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering." So Israel has broken the covenant. They have been sold into debt. They did not answer the Lord when he arrived and called for them. Therefore, they're in danger of being totally cut off from the Lord. But there's a, there's a new voice that then breaks in in verse 4 that is contrasted with Israel. There's a servant there in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. 
So this, this, this servant in Isaiah chapter 50, there's, there's one that contrasts with Israel. He's not like Israel who has broken the covenant, who is in danger of being completely cut off. Instead, this servant has obeyed the Lord. He has heard the Lord. He hasn't fled from the Lord. He has answered when the Lord called. Even, then in verse 6, in the face of abuse. Even in the face of abuse, he has not turned backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, and my checks, uh, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So he endures this, this servant that contrasts with Israel, that obeys the Lord. He endures this humiliation. He endures this abuse. But despite this, he trusts the Lord. He's then vindicated by the Lord. But the Lord, God helps me there in verse 7. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, and notice the wording, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Luke 9 is a description of Jesus, the suffering servant, setting his face to endure the abuse that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 50. This type of shame and suffering. We see that Jesus' determination here is to go to Jerusalem in order to suffer, in order to be put to shame in order to ultimately die. Jesus' purpose is to obey the will of the Father. And he sets his face to walk in obedience, even though it will cost him his very life. He knows that, that you know, don't take this word with all the load that it bears in our culture, but he knows the victimization awaits, but he also knows that vindication awaits. He knows that victimization awaits, but he knows that vindication awaits. He sets his face like flint because he's trusting in God to uphold him and to sustain him. He knows what's coming, but he's trusting in the ultimate vindication of the Father. And so those, those two ideas of, of abuse or, or crucifixion and vindication become the means by which God accomplishes our salvation. First, Jesus would need to suffer at the hands of sinful men. He would need to be mocked and ridiculed, struck and humiliated. Even Isaiah chapter 50 talks about being spit upon, which the Gospels record. He was abused and ultimately put on that Roman cross, all as a representation, a visible picture of the wrath of God being poured out onto his shoulders for our sins. The wrath of God fully satisfied in Christ Jesus for those who would turn to him and rely on his work and not on our own efforts or our own goodness. But Jesus would also be vindicated. He would be sustained by the Father. He would not be left on that shameful cross or left in the cold grave. He would be resurrected from the dead. Demonstrating then his defeat of death, his defeat of sin. If the wages of sin is death and Jesus is still dead, then sin won. But he's not dead. He's resurrected, defeating Satan, defeating sin, defeating death. 
He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He's been given all authority. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father 40 days after that. The Apostle Paul summarizes the the necessity of both of these works of Christ when he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The death and resurrection of Christ, both necessary in accomplishing the purpose for which Jesus has come. And this day is not an accident. Jesus sets his face because the time of fulfillment has come. Jesus didn't stumble into the cross. He didn't wonder how he ended up there. This was planned. It was prophesied about in the book of Acts. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And now Jesus sets his face to move towards this end. And as part of his trek, he will pass through Samaria. Now this is an area in northern Israel between you know, Judea in the south and, and Galilee where Jesus has been doing much of his public ministry here in Luke. There, there's this area of Samaria that Jesus is going to pass through as he sets his face to go towards Jerusalem. And as part of his trek, he sends forth before him these messengers to make preparations for him. This likely means food and, and lodging preparations. It could also mean that maybe these messengers are going to seek to do something akin to John the Baptist's ministry, preparing the way of the Lord, preaching ahead of time. We, don't, we aren't told that. We aren't sure what all these preparations would entail, but we do know that the people of Samaria reject Christ. And if we're, if we're going to understand this text and the idea of Samaria, we need to understand that there's this deep animosity that existed between Samaritans and the Jews. This is religious animosity. This is racial animosity that exists between these two groups, and it dated back several centuries. If you've been in Bible Hour for the last, I don't know, two years or so, we, we talked through some of this establishment of Samaria. When the Assyrians defeated the northern tribes of Israel, the kings brought men from Babylon and they settled in this land of Samaria. And not, not unsurprising to us, these, these people brought with them their idolatrous pagan worship. But there were some, some Jewish exiles that were left over in the land and they intermarried with these, with these Gentiles who brought their pagan uh, religions. And what happened is there's this sort of syncretistic form of worship that sort of combined the idolatry of the, these Babylonian men and this worship of Yahweh. And so there's this religious sort of animosity that exists. Eventually the Samaritans would move closer, though not, not properly, but closer to worshiping Yahweh but it was, it was still convoluted. They only accepted the Pentateuch as God's word. They opted to worship God on a different mountain. We're not going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to worship God over here. And so this strife, which began centuries before Christ, is, is at full boil here. It's, it's still happening in the time of Christ. 
You know, we see evidence of this in John chapter 4 when Jesus asks a Samaritan woman for a drink and she says, you know, who, how are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? And then John adds his little parentheses for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I mean, that's strife. They have no dealings with Samaritans. So it's, it's amazing that in John chapter 4 and, and in our passage this morning, Jesus chooses to go through Samaria. He doesn't despise the Samaritans. This is a time where most Jewish people would take the long route, adding several days to their journey so they don't have to pass through the land of those Samaritans. Jesus, as the Savior of all men, chooses to go through Samaria. And we've seen this, this emphasis in Luke especially as he emphasized Jesus' role as Savior, not only to Israel, but to the nations. Remember, in Luke's genealogy, he goes all the way back to Adam to demonstrate Jesus as the Savior. He will call a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We see in Luke's gospel that it's the Gentile Roman soldier who is praised for his great faith. You know, according to Colossians chapter 4, Luke is a Gentile. So we see in Luke this emphasis in Jesus coming to save all different kinds of people. So we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus chooses Samaria as a place to do ministry. MacArthur said, said it this way, But the Lord's mission of, of saving mercy transcended all racial and cultural boundaries. He was willing to go where the hate-filled Jewish religious leaders would kill him and to go to a Samaritan town that those same leaders would never dream of going. So he goes to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to die, but in going there he goes to Samaria where most Jewish people would not step foot. But these Samaritans, you might expect that Jesus goes to a people that's despised, and they, again, you might expect them to love Christ, but they respond much like their Israelite brothers, cousins. They despise and reject Christ. I think in the text, it seems like the messengers go, they're preparing, the messengers are kicked out, and they, they return this message back to Jesus, that they're they're rejecting you. You're not welcome there. The end of verse 53 there tells us the cause of their rejection because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, now that makes sense, right? With the, with the animosity that existed, Jewish people traveling to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh at Jerusalem, that the Samaritans rejected that sort of worship, that person traveling to Jerusalem would likely be rejected. You know, this, this animosity it went both ways. It wasn't just Jewish people who didn't want to go to Samaria. The Samaritans didn't want people heading to Jerusalem, cutting through their land. But there's likely, I think in the text, an underlying point here. We said, that, we said earlier that the day of Jesus' crucifixion is drawing near according to the predetermined plan of God. It is God's sovereign will, and that's why Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. 
Now we see that same idea. He's, because his face was set towards Jerusalem, that's why he was rejected. So I would argue that uh, the Samaritans refused Jesus because Jesus is on his way to the cross. It was God's predetermined plan that the, the Son of God be rejected before he's vindicated. They reject him because Jesus was on his way, according to the predetermined plan, to the cross. It would be after the resurrection of Jesus that many eyes would be opened to see the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel. You can read about it in Acts 8 where they gather, gather together and the gospel got, has gone to Samaria and the apostles are trying to figure out what to do about it. And so as all sorts of people in Luke reject Christ, Jew and Samaritan and Gentile, so all sorts of people will turn to him in repentance in, and faith, Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile. So as the, as the news of this rejection reaches Christ and the disciples, there's a couple of them, James and John, known as the sons of thunder, who are enraged by the Samaritans' rejection of Jesus. They cannot believe the brazen rejection of Christ. Likely before Jesus even showed up, likely before Jesus was even able to teach, likely before Jesus was even able to work his miracles there. And so they have a request for Jesus. Do you mind if we call down fire from heaven and consume them? Let's kill them all, Jesus. And before we, you know, there's some humor there, but before we jump down their throat, we should recognize at least one thing that they did well. There's, they are at least zealous for the honor of Christ. They're at least zealous for the honor of Christ. They're ignorant as to how their zeal should motivate them to respond to the rejection of Christ. But they have a concern that Jesus would not be treated so flippantly and irreverently and rejected. I think some of us would do well to be more zealous for the glory of the name of Christ. You know, we, we want to avoid responding hastily, or unlovingly, like the sons of thunder here, but we ought to feel a righteous indignation when Christ is not honored in our own lives, or honored in our families, or honored in our nation, or honored in our world. There's a right anger that can arise when the honor of Christ is not recognized. There's a good zeal, and the sons of thunder are zealous, but their timing and their spirit are worthy of rebuke. They want to be like Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, who called down fire from heaven and consumed King Ahaziah's uh, troops who have come to do him harm. But Elijah wasn't vindicating himself in a sense. He, he wasn't seeking to punish or seek his own vengeance. This fire was the Lord's protection of his prophet at that time. So they want to be like Elijah, but they're seeking vengeance, not protection. So the sons of thunder are wrong in their desire to consume the Samaritans, and they're wrong in their timing. It's not time. 
It's not time for that judgment to fall on this people. So, so the, the warning is, whatever you do, don't mistake Jesus' rebuke for James and John as some kind of indication that Jesus will not act in judgment. That he is inactive in the way that he will judge this world. We've already seen that rejection of Jesus is of the utmost seriousness and is met with rejection. Remember, Jesus told the disciples, if they don't, do not receive you in your message, dust off your feet and go to the next city. But this judgment doesn't fall immediately the way that James and John would like it to fall. And it doesn't fall at their command or their will either. So we should be careful not to assume that this must mean that, that the, the judgment of this world will never fall. It will, but not at the sons of thunder's command, at God's command. We want to avoid mocking like the scoffer in 2 Peter 3, 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He hasn't come in judgment yet, so maybe I might assume that it's never coming after all. He will come. He will come like a thief in the night, the, the scriptures say. And he will reward those who are made righteous in Christ, and he will punish everyone else for their sins. Jesus rebukes James and John, but not because judgment wasn't coming. He rebuked them because the full force of God's wrath would be realized in a future judgment. So they're wrong in their timing, but they're also wrong in their demeanor, wrong in their spirit. You see, though this future judgment will come, Jesus is patient. And God is patient, giving people time to repent. So part of the rebuke is, is that this spirit of quick condemnation, that they wish to call down of their own volition and their own timing. They're lacking the grace and compassion and patience of our Lord Jesus Christ and of our God who is in heaven. And so then we too, if, if we're talking about suffering rejection because of our commitment to Christ, we too are called then to be gracious and compassionate even towards those who reject us because they are ultimately rejecting Christ. You know, we've been in, in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says it's really, really easy to love those who love you. It's really easy to love when you're getting something in, in, in return. But we were challenged to love your enemies. I think we can fall very easily in the same trap that James and John did. Instead of loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute you, doing good to those who harm you, we can instead begin to daydream about what it might be like for God to judge them. So we actually reflect God's character when we love our enemies and do good to them. Because he is that sort of God who sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. And if you are in Christ, God has not dealt with you according to your sin. He does not treat you according to your iniquities. He is the type of God that is kind to those who have made themselves his enemy. 
So if you and I want to be more like Christ, we might ask God to help us love those and respond in grace and compassion towards those who are rejecting Christ by doing good to those who reject him. Praying for those who persecute the church of God. Be merciful, we saw in Luke 6, even as your Father is merciful. In men's Bible study last Monday, we got into a discussion about how the Bible speaks of, of a son. And in the, in the New Testament, and the, a son is one who resembles the Father. We see it even in our text. A son of thunder. Well, they, they reflect thunder. They have a thunderous personality is likely how they earn their nickname. This per, their personality is reminiscent of thunder. They reflect that. So they're a son of thunder. So when you and I love our enemies, when we do good to those who persecute us, when we pray for them, again, to borrow from Luke 6, we are sons of the Most High. We are like the Father when we do good to those who persecute the church of God. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You know, another reason to do good to those who reject Christ and reject those who are faithful to Christ is that when we do, we demonstrate that Christ is all-satisfying and that we have found our joy in Him, not in the things of this world. And the reason I say that is uh, Hebrews 10, 32 through 34 says this, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How could these believers endure public exposure, reproach, affliction? How could they joyfully accept the plundering of their property? Only if they are trusting that what Christ has given to us in themselves is more precious if the promises that he has given to his children in, in himself are more precious and they are superior to the things of this world, can we endure reproach and affliction and suffering and even the plundering of our property? If we are content to imitate the mercy of the Father towards those who have made themselves an enemy, then we are demonstrating that Christ is all satisfying. So we might pray for those who reject us instead of longing for their destruction. Unlike the sons of thunder here, we might remember that the judgment is sure, but it's not ours to dole out. We can long for that day, and we'll talk about the vindication of God's people. We entrust our enemies to God's righteous judgment and in obedience to Christ, we pray, we love, we seek to do good. So the question is, who has made themselves your enemy? And how have you responded to your enemy? Maybe it is someone that's close to you. Maybe it's an antagonistic friend or family member. Maybe it's a boss or a 
coworker. You know, I, I'm sure many of you have been ridiculed for your faith in Christ. I had a manager who would ridicule my faith in Christ. But sometimes the, the person we perceive to be our enemy is someone who we don't personally know. That's what I think James and John are upset about. Someone they've not met before. So is there someone that you don't personally know that you consider an enemy? Maybe it's some form of activist who we know is actually harming people. Maybe it's a politician that's passing ungodly legislation. Again, James and John are wishing to call fire down on people they've never met. And we spend so much of our time ruminating on national and international news that maybe much of our anger, righteous and unrighteous, is directed towards those we don't personally know. You know, I want to be careful to say we have good reason to be angry, righteous anger, and zealous for God's will, God's design, God's glory. Sin is so destructive. So when those are are pushing sin and ungodliness, we ought to be angry because we know what sin does in the life of someone who embraces such sin. However, we're challenged to move in compassionate love towards those who reject Him. We can strive to be like Christ, who chose to go towards the Samaritans, despite their animosity towards Him, despite knowing that He would be rejected. The alternative is to be like Jonah, who preaches the gospel out of nothing more than then wrote obedience, and then he goes up on the hill and says, you know what, maybe, after all, I will get to watch Nineveh get roasted tonight. That's, that's the alternative. So as the servant in Isaiah 50 knew that abuse, rejection, and humiliation was his to endure, we too are told by Jesus that we will be hated by the world because the world first hates Jesus. By and large, the church has been persecuted and attacked because the world hates Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15 that ultimately the animosity of the world is directed at Christ. We're just the visible target. They take it out on Christ's followers who have been chosen out of this world. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 15. So we should accept this morning that it is normal for Christians to be despised by, by the world. We've had a sort of reprieve in American history, it feels like. But that seems to be coming to an end. We should just assume that, that this is normal. That we will be maligned and attacked and ridiculed. In fact, if you read 1 Peter, it's, it's a lot of verbal-type slandering and, and abuse that has come to his audience. And this is nothing new. This is nothing new if you look at the history of, of the church. The majority of the apostles were put to death for proclaiming Christ as Lord. The early church was persecuted by rulers like Nero and Diocletian. Christians were slaughtered by gladiators for the entertainment of the masses. 
In the following centuries, even though Roman persecution slowed, there were men who, and women who faced martyrdom and persecution. Theologians like Athanasius and Augustine were forced to stand against the world for the sake of the world. The rise of Islam in the 7th century brought about a new wave of persecution as many Christians were forced with the question, repent and turn to Islam or die by the sword. Turn to Islam or die. In Europe, leading up to the time of the Reformation, men like William Tyndale gave their lives to ensure that God's people could have God's word in their own language. He defied the Catholic Church who wanted a Latin translation that the priest would have to tell you what it meant. And he wanted a Bible that was translated in the common language of the people. In fact, one day an exasperated Catholic scholar said to Tyndale, we would be better off without God's word than without the word of the Pope. And Tyndale's response, he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. He said, if I have it my way, the boy who plows the field will know more of the scriptures than you do. Tyndale was put to death, strangled, and burned at the stake at the age of 42. Following the Reformation, the Fox, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs says, many were bound to relinquish not only goods and children, but life itself for the glory of their Redeemer. This has been the lot of the Christian church. Charles Spurgeon's life was threatened if he came over to the American South as he preached against slavery. Today, all over the world, Christians face attack, isolation, jail, and death for their faithfulness to Christ and His gospel. From terrorists to authoritarian dictators and rulers to decadent nations who hate the preaching of the Word of God and the holiness and righteousness of God. Christians continue to face persecution. And none of this should be surprising. But like the servant of Isaiah 50, we understand the one who aids us in our affliction. We understand the one who sustains us in our persecution. As those who are united to Christ by faith, we not only expect the rejection of this world, but we can look forward to the day where we are fully and finally vindicated at the judgment. In Luke 18, we have that parable of the persistent widow, and Jesus says this, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God hears the prayers of his saints, of the elect, as they are rejected in this world, and he acts on their behalf. The voice of the martyrs cries out in the book of Revelation, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who would dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, until you come and you avenge our death and you vindicate your people? The answer is given at the end of the book. Surely, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. And we echo the Apostle John. When he says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, we want to imitate Christ. Yet it's hard when we have a zeal for the honor of his name. So give us soft hearts that we might pray for those who reject you. We might move towards in compassionate love those whom we, we struggle to love, if we're honest. Thank you for Jesus who set his face to suffer there in Jerusalem, who, who made it his purpose to obey you and gave up his life. And thank you for the way that you vindicated your son and raising him from the dead and, and raising him to your right hand. Lord, we pray that we would be humble this morning and receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen.